I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. When I went to undergraduate school, I chose one that was in Vermont, and I absolutely loved the pastoral green surroundings and the cowbells and the starry nights and being able to really hear my own heartbeat. And then on the weekends, I would get on a plane and fly down to New York City, which I also loved that pace, but it was very different to busy streets and plays and museums and going to bed at three o'clock in the morning. I seem to be gravitated towards duality, towards the opposites of things. Now I live in Bend, Oregon with a house that is very much close to a river and we go skiing and paddle boarding and it's very soothing and meditative and I get a lot of thinking done while our business is focused and centered primarily in Phoenix, Arizona, which is at a completely different pace of meetings and getting out and working with clients and the duality, again, is one of the things that really attracts me. In fact, this very podcast is inspired by the duality of business, which is more focused on data and information and facts and so forth, with this idea of the superpower that we call intuition, which is something that doesn't always have language, but is creative and is possibility-focused and it's in its visionary and its nature, duality. So my next guest on the business of intuition is actually a person who lives and works in a space between two different opposites in some cases. On one hand, she works with these extremely smart, visionary people who have ideas about bringing certain kinds of products to market. On the other hand, she needs to be able to help them tell a story in a way that others can understand it. Duality, big idea, how do I translate it so others get it? Donna Laughlin is the founder of LMGPR and known for her work with futurists and innovators. She has launched more than 500 companies, taking them from stealth to market leaders since forming her agency in 2002. She is also the host of Before It Happens, a leading narrative podcast featuring visionaries and the moments, events, and realizations that inspired them to change their lives for the better. Donna excels in the realm of storytelling and uses those skills to propel new companies into the mainstream. Donna Laughlin on the business of intuition. So Donna, it's great to have you on the show. Very much appreciate your time. I wanted just to maybe start us off with a question as I understand that you really have built a career around helping visionaries tell their stories and and helping with the marketing and the clarification of that. When you look at some of the stuff that you're hearing from some of your clients around these big ideas that they have, is there one that really sticks out right now? Like, yep, I think this is going to happen. We may not have it right now. What is your prediction with some of the things that we might all have connection to that is not in existence at this point? So I work with a lot of emerging market visionaries. And I think the one of the markets right now that I think still is really hot, even though I've been working in the space where a good you know, 10 years, is automated robots. Robots doing thing jobs that you and I don't want to do or others might not want to do, such as window washing robots. 
Mm. Robots that actually assist law enforcement and municipalities to protect and to augment police action and monitoring. Robots that are are in greenhouses or grow houses that are picking produce that once was in the agricultural belts of where I live in the Central Valley and this valley. A lot of there's a labor shortage and there's a talent shortage. And so some of these labor intensive jobs that were once Mm. filled readily are not being filled. And so who's going to do it? Robots are not taking our jobs, but there are jobs that robots are very willing to take. Mm. Got it. So again, this is going into the economy and this is going into education and workforce development and so forth. Are you seeing then with the advent of what could be more robots in our society that it will be incumbent on all of us to have a higher level of knowledge and skill in order to do things that are not manual labor, so so to speak, but more thought leadership, more thought leaders, you know, is that where we're heading is in that kind of direction? Yeah, I think so. And I I think when if you look at some of the most fundamental things that people do uh, when they go shopping, most grocery stores and big box stores, whether it be, you know, a Target or a Best Buy or or your favorite, you know, mid-sized grocery store has check self-checkout. That's a form of artificial intelligence and data, you know, content gathering. We might not think of it as being artificial intelligence and robotics, but in a lot of ways it is. It's a form of it, right? When you were doing, if you think back in time, when we used to, I mean, go to the, you know, whether it be at a hospital or at the airport and you would have these self-serve kiosk, right? That you put, you know, 50 cents a dollar in and half the time you wouldn't get your item that you paid for. Those are now being, you know, replaced with very basic robotic type functionality. Mm-hmm. And I actually was at traveling through an airport a few weeks ago and there was a guy, it was three coffee places in proximity to me, but there was one that everyone was crowded around. And it was a robot kiosk, coffee kiosk. Mm-hmm. And all it was, was, was a robotic arm making coffee. And I thought, wow, you know, I wonder what that, cup of coffee costs versus the Starbucks coffee and the other kiosk coffee, which I can't remember the name of it, but there was a little competition. But I thought, at least in this scenario, you get a little bit of a ex- different experience. And it was a little bit of a, you know, I, of a show, so to speak, you know, that you might not get typically watching the barista. And so I see these types of things and I, I always stand back and say, do we need this? You know, is this just entertainment? Or is this, this, you know, some kind of quirky, you know, gizmo? But I do think there would be a use for that robot. For example, the coffee making robot could be in the cafeteria, you know, at a corporate site where you don't have to keep the staff on all day long, uh, 24 by 7, you know, coffee being prepared. Could be in in a hospital concierge or, you know, cafeteria. It could be used in a military base, right? It could be used at an airport. I am a private pilot and I like to fly. I don't drink a lot of caffeine for obvious reasons because I'll probably get to this too, too rigid uh, flying. But I go to a lot of fl- uh, fly into a lot of small airports and there's nothing there other than like there's maybe some fuel if you're lucky. And mm-hmm. I could see something like that being a welcome, you know, re- not just a greeter, but a welcome percolating you know, uh, host, so to speak. Got it. Yeah. But on this idea around AI and robots and so forth, and you're in this space, you hear these stories, I guess, what's the 
What are you hearing about people's concern that, you know, AI is going to be taking over not just jobs, but maybe kind of what it is to be human? You know, at some point I've heard, you know, again, this is all hearsay stuff, but I wanted to get your reaction on like, this could be the last generation where we really sort of experience what it's like to be human. I just got a book recently called The Last Invention, which is sort of the kind of a warning book around AI becoming so ubiquitous in our life that, you know, it's sort of taking away from what it means to be human. What's been the the conversation in your space around that? And is there sort of this moral checks and balances like, yes, we could do this. Yes, we have the technology, so to speak. But is it the right thing to do? What's your sense around that? You can't replace connective thinking, right, in decision making. And artificial intelligence experts, and I've spoken to a lot of them that are very savvy, like 25, 30 years, you know, in the space, working with experts that came from the 50s and the 60s that were already talking about this. Artificial intelligence is not a new terminology. It's been around since the 50s. So we think about sci-fi movies and the robots battling and taking over the earth and stuff. (laughs) And when I was a kid, I used to hear about things like this. And, you know, you watch the Jetsons and you'd see all this kind of futuristic stuff. I still think autonomous cars are very futuristic to me. We have autonomous, uh, you know, tractors and agricultural vehicles. And it's still, we haven't replaced the human totally. If you look at the number of Teslas that are on the road and you look at companies like, you know, Wemo that are doing different experiments and stuff, you still, we still need the human factor in there to monitor, prevent, and protect, I think, the passenger as well as the driver. Mm. Dr. Stephen Schwartz, is a artificial intelligence expert and he's written a great book. His title, I'll think of it or I'll share it with you. Sure. He himself has a Tesla, but he doesn't rely on it being self-driving. So what just happened? I had an alien. We're talking about artificial intelligence and somebody took over my voice. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) So when I've talked to experts that are fans of artificial intelligence, what it can do, they clearly have told me that the human factor cannot be removed. Mm. Robots can do perform tasks. They can do some miraculous things, but they can't replace our cognitive thinking and the human engagement and interaction. The engagement that you and I are having now is not robotic. Mm-hmm. It's we're having a conversation. You're using words. We're speaking the same language. Yeah. Robots often are very programmable and not two-way engaging. Siri, Alexa, they annoy me because they don't always listen to me. No, and I don't. think and I think it's one of the human factors is that people typically respond and they don't listen. Yes. So if we're gonna be in a society and communicate and be effective team members in work environment or in personal relationships and engage. We have to be able not just to respond, we need to listen. And so I think the fundamental human nature is that we like that two-way engagement. So I don't drink coffee. I watched a coffee making robot. I thought it was fascinating. He didn't spill. He didn't waste anything. Precision was like a fine, you know, German car. And Mm. it was like, you know, didn't drop, didn't miss a drop. Hmm. So let's take this another step further. What would you imagine the world to look like in 100 years, given what you're sort of sensing? And certain technologies take a while for them to really take root. Some of them are just ideas right now. 
What do you imagine 100 years from now? Wow, 100 years. Yeah. I think in 25 years, we'll probably still be talking about fuel and EV and the power. I mean, California is a state in which I live in is very progressive, but not all states are adopting it. Not all countries are. The World Economic Forum will probably still be talking about uh, sustainability and climate change and those types of things and the problems and the hazards that we've created. I hope by 50 years that we would have been sensible enough to stop the insanity and not, you know, have the increase of landfill, you know, that we have Mm. and the very disposable society that we live in, the very fast, fast fashion and fast food and fast consumption. I personally, I like fast cars and I like slow food. I want a garden. I want to be able to have access to my food. I think the grocery store of the future and the markets of the future will be, it will include the virtual reality and some of those interesting nuances in which you can actually, you know, pick out a a pattern and then pick out, you know, your virtual wardrobe and have it made and delivered to you. Those things to me make sense. I would like to think that we don't eliminate the whole, you know, the human factor, as I mentioned, but Mm -hmm. I do think things like the Hyperloop, which sounds Mm -hmm. really extreme now, and Elon Musk, you know, vision of what that could be. I think that actually sounds really cool and beyond the Jetson world that if you could actually, you know, for what if you're a medical doctor and you need to you know, to administer administer a patient and you're in a totally different state, you need to be in another part of the world. That's pretty hyper important. Or if you, you know, for business purposes, uh, for personal travel and leisure, I don't think it's really, you know, a a requirement that we need to hyper ourselves to that degree. But I see essential, meaningful purposes or roles would make sense. I would hope that in a hundred years that we're still thriving on earth, that we mm. still have a purpose and we have the conscience and we have a, uh, have the dignity in taking care of the earth that we all haven't left and gone to Mars or other planets because they're, you know, it's interesting. I was reading something about SETI, the Center for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And mm-hmm. one of the things I like about that group and, and there's the research and the science is they're looking at not, they're looking for things that actually help us understand the planet better. So when they when they a few years ago uncovered a whole species of crab that they thought just you know extinct and they exist and what they can learn from the studying of those crabs to actually you know bring back a you know a biosphere that which they thought you know environment which they thought was no longer or the agricultural aspects of what can be planted and grown using hydropower or using solar power or using wind energy power and these different things that could reduce our carbon footprint. So I think right now, you know, your question is I I had to break it into 25, 50, 100, because 100 years is really far out there. So I hope that we make progressive steps to get there sensibly. And I Mm. think that we need to start nurturing the younger generation to think about these things too, not wait until the problem, you know, in full existence, which I think is a little bit what we've done. Many years ago, when I was in undergrad, I lived in Vermont, went to school there and got to be pretty embedded into a community just for a short period of time. And I noticed that people listened differently there. 
as they would say contrast in New York City, you know, a very different environment. So the environment had a, a certain effect on how people behaved and how people thought and how people listened in this case. And so as I think about that, your comment around listening as being one of these human characteristics will probably won't go away. If you were to put ourselves, you know, 50, 25, 100 years from now, and knowing that technology is human created, right? We are the masterminds behind all this. There is a mirror effect to this, right? There is an opposite to this. There's a connection to this, much like, you know, a strategic plan is on one side, but the team that develops it is on the other, but they both need each other. They both evolve and fall and grow at the same time. So in that case, my question then is, what kinds of human attitudes and skills are we going to need even more of or new ones that we don't now have in order to fully embrace the technology of the future? Wow. You know, the first thing that came to my mind, whether it's wrong or right, was more gratitude and less attitude. <laughs> That's a great... I, can, we, can we just name that <laughs> as the, the, the podcast show? <laughs> and, and, and the reason I say that is I think that we need to be open, be open to change, open to differences of opinions, open to not just we talk a lot about inclusion and equity and those types of things. And I think that's important, but it's just like be human, I think, is the first thing is to be have a conscious and be aware, open and be open to conversation. So what you just described of being in a different place, you know, I think is really true. If you go to the Midwest, it's going to be, you know, people respond and communicate differently than if you're in a busy, busy, busy city. When I go into communities for the first time, whether it's in North America or out of the country, and I've been to like 80 some countries in my life, I typically will go to the farmer's market because that's where people gather. I'll go Mm -hmm. to an art museum and then I'll look, ask the locals for a really great place to go, the place that the locals would eat. And and so I don't know if you ever see the show, somebody feed Phil, but I love that series on Netflix. And he hmm. typically will go to a, like a street food type environment, a casual dining in somebody's home, and then a very upscale kind of Michelin star place. And he just all three degrees within one particular, be in Vietnam or be Italy or wherever he might be. I think life is a bit of a of a buffet in that sense, is that if we're open to it, then there's going to be some new discussions and, and point of view. And I don't, I've never been the, type, the person that wants to have all cohesive point, everyone you have the same positioning point. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things I've learned in my career is, and as a former news reporter, my stories had to be written not by my point of view necessarily, but by the point of views that I've gathered and collected in discussion. And that's, you know, my point of view could not sway the story. Now, a lot's right. changed, a lot's changed in journalism um, since that. But I think that's where the social media component comes in is that the social influence, the people weighing in and kind of in some ways validating whether the opinion is matter or it's relevant or not. So I think the the other piece, I said less less attitude and more gratitude. And I think the other is just unplugging. Mm-hmm. And I mean digitally unplugging. And I just had a conversation with somebody about if, a little bit ago about the importance of sleep. Yeah. I savor sleep. I think sleep is one of the best things that we could possibly give ourselves 
and in, inoculate ourselves with some more sleep, we'll probably get to just be better who we are. And I think the third, you know, is we look at at the younger generation that has been you know, the Gen Zs that and which is my kids' generation that are totally been connected to everything. I constantly tell them, when was the last time you looked up? Look above your waist, you know, I walk around just <laughs> bumping into things yeah. and look up. You look at things differently, like a photographer, see the sky differently, different points and times of day. And I think it just goes back to perspective. I, I would hope that education is not, you know, that I think education, not just institutional college and in K through 12 education, but travel and media and digital content that we have access to continues to nurture us and be, give us, you know, options to be able to be nurtured. Yeah. Yeah. You, there's so much you just said in that, but travel being a big piece of it, unplugging uh, and sleep, appreciation, gratitude. I was thinking about the comment around social media that we are so in the position where we're collapsing understanding and agreement that they have to be the same thing. And I think travel and all the things you talked about kind of bring back that muscle that we can understand another person's point of view, but we don't necessarily have to agree with it. Unfortunately, social media with all the likes that we have indicates that I agree with what was just said. We don't necessarily have a button that says, I understand what you just said. I may not agree with it. So our measurement around social media seems to be focusing our attention towards agreement versus understanding. I want to ask a couple of other quick questions here. I mean, kind of moving into another different direction. There are people we teach a some work on innovation. And I know that you're really big in this as well. But people sometimes say, I'm just not creative. I don't have an innovative bone in my body, you know. And yet, I don't believe that to be the case. It may be a unused or somewhat um, unfamiliar muscle. But nonetheless, we all can be innovative. How do, do you have any, you know, rel relatively easy tips and tools that somebody listening to this and says, I like what she's saying, but I want to know how I can be more innovative myself since she's in this industry. Is there any two or three things you might suggest? Yeah, surround yourself by really talented people. So, mm -hmm. you know, I appreciate art, but I can't draw, you know, as an example, right? right? I can create with words. I, you know, at a very young age, I found that my gift was with was words. And words were magical. Words have power. And I could influence and I could talk to strangers with, you know, with, with conversation and words. Eventually, those words became stories and stories became a career and, and as a journalist. And so going back to kind of the roots of knowing where your talents are, one of the things that I do with when I'm looking for a good story is going through the discovery process. I think sometimes we forget as adults that our curiosity is often lost. We get too busy with structure and protocol and social, you know, protocols and work protocols and all kinds of protocols. And and if we take a little bit of that inner child, you know, and find that to rediscover, I often find in speaking to visionaries, innovators that would create these amazing products. And I gotta go back to their childhood and have a little bit of that, I wouldn't say, you know, kind of like in the sandbox conversation mm. of like why? What was, you know, what inspired you to be an engineer was because you were really good at Legos or, hmm. you know, or designing cars because you had a matchbox, you know, Hot Wheel collection or, you know, was there something, you know, else that, you know, was that pivot? So hmm. I, I think we can all take classes and whether they're online or offline and find great mentors 
I've learned a lot from my clients. And I think I learn a lot from my clients that I work with because I ask a lot of questions. And I ask a lot of questions because I'm a really curious, natural, naturally a curious person. But I find it's a little bit like a hobby for me is sometimes I'll take a, I'll get really geeky here, hardware store as an example. I love to go to the hardware store because I don't know what to do with half the stuff in there. I mean, some of the fundamental stuff I do know what to do with, you know, whether it's like cleaning supplies or some basic hardware, screwdriver, hammer stuff. But then I go to a section and there's like, oh, there's like wire and cable and cutting and electrical stuff. I don't know what to do. So I like, what do we use this for? Right. And I ask questions because not that I want to be an electrician or a plumber or anything. Mm -hmm. I just think it's kind of interesting to learn some of these popular science, popular mechanic type things that one might have a purpose for it down the road. And as a kid, I used to watch my father tinker, whether it was on his airplane or a car or something. And I was just always fascinated, you know, with that level of detail. So I think talents can be uncovered in the strangest places. And I think that's the purpose in in K through 12, particularly education, younger kids of like math was not taught to me in a fun matter. No, and math, no, math, me. <laughs> yeah, and math became fun to me when I could apply it to flying an airplane with my father. It was essential that I understood math and calculations because the worst case scenario was we're going to get a land or get a crash. You don't yeah. want to land. You want to land well, and you don't want to crash. And then yeah. you got the weather and all these other things that require you to understand math and cooking. You know, cooking was like, okay, the boys take the hard math and girls take the, I didn't know there was gender-based math, but apparently there was when I was growing up. And Hmm. I remember like, okay, I like cooking because you have to measure things and you have to do calculations and things like that. So I think there's, as we, as adults, we can find and discover those untalented things, those talents that we maybe didn't apply because we were told we couldn't. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, so you're kind of saying that some of the innovative characteristics are starting our childhood, but certainly can be nurtured and developed as, as we get older. And I was sort of struck by some of the things you were talking about before around listening and sleep and looking up, uh, combined with this new set of conversation pieces that we're having now around asking questions and and being inquisitive sort of becomes sort of the essential sauce of the secret sauce of the innovative mind is that we need all these things to be able to to come up with these new ideas. Um, is there something about the innovative person that has a difficulty translating their their innovative ideas to those who are not there yet? You know, and how do you help them translate? the idea, the passion, the thing that we see. I got a client right now who's just a phenomenal innovator and he thinks always out a hundred years. And his issue sometimes is he doesn't know how best to translate it in a way that people will get it. Is that possible? And if so, how? Yeah. Well, I think it's one of these scenarios. I remember when I was starting out as a reporter and I thought, well, I can't go interview, you know, particular person because I don't know anything about that subject. Then I realized that I have my job was to report. They're the subject matter expert. Right. And so mm-hmm. if I ask the right questions, then 
I'll get the content that I need. And I think oftentimes in corporate environments, and I've worked for very large corporate, and I've worked for small startups, is that the corporate environment sometimes silos teams. So the Mm -hmm. engineering team doesn't necessarily talk to the business development team, and the business development team doesn't talk to the the marketing people over there, those people, right? And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, working for some very large tech companies and and having to and literally would go around to Canvas to get to know people in other departments so that I could actually just be a better you know, mm-hmm. team member and employee because that being able to understand like, well, the engineer and the person that you just described, I work with, you know, people that are extremely br- brilliant, but they can't explain to me the impact of the product that they're bringing to market. They can explain to me how it works and we can get really underneath the hood. So I typically ask those questions and let them explain it. And then I have to break it down as if, you know, I'm an alien making a Peter Brother jam sandwich for the first time. Right. And it's like, I need to make sure that I understand not the speeds and feeds as much as the impact it's going to make. So we were talking about agriculture and robots as an example why would one want to put a robot to task to pick tomatoes when we have people pick tomatoes? Well, it can pick it faster. Um, and maybe, you know, there's a, a growth cycle is faster. We don't have the labor. There's climate challenges. Maybe we have another pandemic. There's lots of reasons. Or maybe it's, you know, it's for Alaska where they have, you know, more extreme weather than they might in California. So I think uh, respectfully, you know, understanding the other person's talent is important, right? And so, and and letting them know, I'm not an engineer, but I'm great with words or in business development. And you need to be able to articulate exactly how to sell this product to a customer and understand the customer's needs. And so I think having that cross-pollination, and I've seen some people that are just wick. I mean, there are very few people that have what I call the total it factor that are extremely articulate in being able to take their product and then to bring it to market at the same time. And I think oftentimes it's just not navigating, you know, having the familiarity of going from, you know, innovation to articulation, but there are people who have the it factor and I work with a lot of them They and I see the raw talent immediately and I get, aha, I see a cover story. How mm-hmm. am I going to help them get to that cover story then is, is really important to help them nurture that or finding a hobby that they have if they're not quite as articulate and finding a hobby or interest that they have that can then be woven into part of that storytelling for them. Yeah, and this gets into all sorts of other areas here. Donna, too, where I'm thinking that a person in an organization may have a great idea and it's not that they can't even articulate it. Maybe they can, but they're afraid of the reaction that they're going to get. You're an idiot. You're stupid. That's crazy. That's pie in the sky. That's not realistic. We don't have a budget for it. Are you, are you out of your mind? We got to get back to the actual job of doing the work while you come up with this idea. So some of it's environmental is how much do we encourage these divergent and expanded ideas. Do we have space for it in our agenda that we have? You know, I just talked to a guy today and he's spending, you know, 50, 60 hours a week in meetings. Like how many of those different meetings do you have regarding anything that has to do with innovative thinking? None of it. It's all about operations. And so we don't have space for it. We don't put it into our corporate 
mindset in our agendas, then, then we won't ever be thinking outside of whatever it is that we're trying to do. We will only be kind of recreating the same wheel that we've been creating for a long, long time. Yeah, that would exhaust me. <laughs> it would be too. After that many meetings. I, I had worked for a company years ago and the day kind of started at 3 p.m. because everything prior to that was meetings. And yeah. then, then it was, I felt like I was swing shift. So then the 3 p.m., then I would actually get my work, you know, and I would go right. to like 8 or after o'clock. the kids are in bed and then you go back to the computer and then you're back to getting all the work done that you should have gotten done during the day, but you couldn't because you were in a meeting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think if we look at when we were kids in the classroom, you know, environment and everything was curiosity and the newness and the unstructuring of things, right? You had structure in the classroom because it'd be just, you know, discipline and, you know, follow that stuff. But, but I don't know in the last few years with the, the Zoom land extension of meetings mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. Now there's a lot of layoffs that are happening and people are like, oh, I didn't see this coming. Like, why was this coming? I, I don't know. It's kind of like a stuffed sausage. Like we just kind of, and I, you know, I said less, you know, entitlement and there's certain things in the work environment that I think structurally need to to be reset. I remember going and seeing my first cubicle environment and going, oh, this is the weirdest thing. Everyone kind of like pops out of their head and kind of works in these cubes and they go to these Whack meetings. And come back. Yeah, exactly. And then they disappeared and it was like the open yeah. environment. And when then we went so open, I remember my a couple of my team members and I said something about, well, why don't you talk to so-and-so about it? And, you know, and they were like, oh, I am. I'm, in, I'm messaging him right now. I'm like, but he's like right there. Right next, right so next would, to you. I get it. I know. Exactly. I know and it was like yeah. the game battleship. And I'm thinking, why are we yeah. doing that? when you could yeah. just w- walk around the room. And just to show that I never felt entitled in my own business, I had an intern once who felt a little off put. It, he was, he didn't like where he was sitting and he was sitting in the kind of the bullpen with everybody kind of equal neutral zone. And I said, well, you know, would you like to sit at my desk? And he said, and he, and I had a desk that was, my desk was actually more towards the front. I didn't mind the UPS guy and then thought I was an administrative assistant or the, or the business. I really didn't care. I, I, I just wanted you know, to run my business and so he sat there and he says, oh, gosh, I don't like sitting up here. He says, I have to sign for packages and they deliver water. And they deliver this. And they're not going to think that I'm really important. And I said, well, why do you need to feel important? Do you, in your workflow that you have and what you're contributing, I'd hope, you know, that would make you feel valued, right? For him, it was status. Fitting mm-hmm. at the front door meant that he was like the reception, and mm-hmm. I grew up in an editorial environment where I didn't care where I sat as long as I had the opportunity to do my job. So just to, to show my point, I sat up there myself and I said, let me show you how, how it works. And the UPS guy came in, the FedEx guy came in and the delivery people came in. I even had a client come in. The client was like, well, this is kind of cool that you're sitting here at the front. And I said, you know, I know I'm the windows of the world. I see everything that's happening. but." I, it was just, I, there was a little, it's befuddled, so a word. We used to talk about a hundred years language, but I was befuddled that here, you know, it was an intern and he felt that it was so important that he sat in a certain chair mm-hmm. to feel good about himself. 
Yeah. I don't know. I get empowered much, you know, I don't know, much that doesn't rock my world. I, I actually right. worked in an editorial newspaper, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper, and they could smoke inside the newsroom. And there was only one window in the building, and this was in the East Coast. And I remember clamoring to get to the to the desk where the window was. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> because it was just nasty. I had to say yeah. that. Yeah. And 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 he said, Well, why do you like sitting by the window so much? And I laugh and I said, Well, because I like the fresh. I said I like the view, but it was really the fresh air. Yeah. I should have been honest instead of oh, well. fresh air. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that my dad was a newspaper man for uh, 35 years. And, you know, that open space concept you talked about is so true. I mean, it literally is just desks and desks and desks. And you would move around based on whatever you needed. And nobody really cared where it was. It was the, with the work that they were doing, but they'd also they would yell out and they would get some help and information and get on a phone call. It was it was exciting. It was sparkling. It was, you know, things were just popping. But Donna, this is, you know, great stuff. I really, you know, think that what you've talked about has been really inspiring it comes back to me, it sounds like it's that human interaction is something that we will always have. And that it's also one of the main ingredients for innovative thinking. It's often our own thoughts that might spur a new thinking pattern, but it also could be the interaction with somebody else that through the questioning, through the listening, through that sort of relationship that we have with people creates innovation. And that's probably going to be hopefully something that we will have for many, many years to come. How can people connect with you? Well, uh, very easy. LinkedIn is my favorite place to hang out. So it's just Donna Laughlin and S-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. And then my podcast, Before It Happened, uh, which is a show that I think challenges some of the things we've talked about, which is designed for visionaries and futurists and the future that they imagine. And I get to the point of the it factor for them is before it happened, before they made the decision to take their idea, their concept, or their product to market, and what it what happened? What was that pivot hmm. that they decided to do so? And so there's, there's some crazy stories, such as an aerospace engineer deciding to make cheese. I mean, that's just wild, right? Hmm. Um, and so things, uh, stories like that. So before it happened, show on Instagram. Before it happened on all major platforms of Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and all those planetary places podcasting <laughs> out i got it thanks for joining me it was great yeah thank you so much you bet. thank you for listening to the business of intuition if you enjoyed the show please subscribe rate and review on apple podcasts google spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you'd like to learn more about dean or mission facilitators leadership go to mfileadership.com That's mfileadership.com.